Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Mansman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Miriam. Today, we are talking about a really fascinating and largely untold Jewish story. Throughout the last 3,000 years of our history, most of it has been characterized by joy, trauma, oppression, and wandering. And this is sort of a different kind of story where we maybe flip the script a little bit. One of the most dramatic stories of our diaspora is that of the Sephardim, the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula. By the end of the 15th century, many Jewish communities of Spain and Portugal had been forced to convert to Catholicism, and these Jews became conversos, or Jews who practiced their Judaism in secret. In 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain expelled the Jews of Spain entirely and confiscated all their worldly possessions. Some of the exiled Jews fled to Portugal until it too decided to execute, expel, or forcibly convert the entire Jewish population. The Sephardim, which included communities of converso Jews, came as refugees to the Ottoman Empire, Italy, and North Africa. Some of them sought refuge in Central America, South America, and the Caribbean islands. And some of these Sephardic Jews in the Caribbean even became pirates. The many stories of the Sephardic diaspora are dramatic and should be cinematic, too. The history is a largely untapped resource for adaptation in film or TV, which is why we're so excited today to welcome as our guest director Arnon Shore, who joins us from Los Angeles. His short film, The Pirate Captain Toledano, is the first film set in the little-known world of Jewish piracy in the Caribbean. The film is selected to be screened at the upcoming inaugural Waltham Film Factory Shorts Fest. Arnon grew up in Waltham, attended Gant Academy and Brandeis, so this is a particularly meaningful event to have this local premiere take place in his hometown. Arnon, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Thank you very much. It's so great to have you on the cast. Um, so please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, the story is uh, kind of a, you know, the typical story. I was born somewhere. I lived in some places and then I started making movies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Israel, but grew up actually in the Boston area. I grew up in Waltham. That's and, right. Uh, so you know, for, for your listeners, the relevant stuff is uh, I went to MIMO for nine years and then uh, jumped ship over to what at the time was called the New Jewish High School of Greater Boston. I don't know if it's still referred to as New Jew. It's uh, formerly Gan Academy. That's right. It is Gan Academy. Um, and then I went to Brandeis, so I didn't go very far for college. From there, lived in Cambridge for a year, in Baltimore for four years, and now California for a while. We understand that for you, there's actually a family connection to the Portuguese Sephardim. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. My mother was born in Israel, but her family came from Libya. And there is a family tradition that says that the family came to Libya in the very late 1490s, maybe 1497, 1498, from Portugal, shortly after the Jews of Portugal were expelled. So I I actually only found this out kind of recently. I knew that the family is from Libya, but the specific connection to the Inquisition uh, is kind of new information that I'm still kind of trying to research and trying to find out. So let's make the abrupt segue into pirates. And sure. I'm curious how you first learned about the history of Sephardic Jewish pirates. So 
as I'm sure you, uh, your listeners can, uh, can relate to, the notion of Jewish pirates is kind of surprising. Uh, I was at a Shabbat meal with a friend of mine, and he told me about a book he had read called Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a great book. It's a it's a great book. It's a kitschy title. It's fun. It is fun. So I mean, I had to I had to learn more. I got the book. I read the book. It is pretty much the only book out there on this history of of Jews who, uh, as a means of survival, and and for some as a means of revenge against Spain, took to piracy after they were expelled from from Iberia during the Inquisition. There's something about this story that's so amazing because first of all, it's it's untold largely. You right. said there's basically one book out there about it. What else really resonated with you when you learned about the existence of Jewish pirates, which frankly has been a little bit of a surprise to many people who I've talked to? A little bit of background. As a filmmaker, one of the things that has fascinated me for the last 15 years or so um, is finding ways to tell Jewish stories on screen. And in particular, finding ways to tell Jewish stories beyond the way Hollywood tends to tell Jewish stories, which is very kind of nebishy Ashkenazic. Uh, Ashkenormative. Ashkenormative. <laughs> there you go. Good word. So I don't mind Ashkenazic stories, but if I tell an Ashkenazic story, it's going to be, you know, a post-apocalyptic action adventure, or it's going to be, a, <laughs> you know, a police procedural about a golem or something different and, and spicy and fun. Um, and the thing that struck me about Jewish pirates is that it presented the possibility to tell a Jewish story on screen that was extremely removed, almost completely unrecognizable when compared to the sort of typical Hollywood Jewish stories that we that we know and occasionally love. So that was a big part of it. And the other part of it is that when I look for Jewish stories to tell, I try to find Jewish stories that can cross over into not specifically Jewish audiences, finding stories that, that can resonate more broadly. Because frankly, there aren't that many Jews out there. And even if all of us went to the movies to see Jewish movies, those films wouldn't make that much money. To me, the idea that this is at its core the story of piracy, yeah, not just the story of Jews. And it's a pirate story that is unlike any other pirate story they've ever seen, because these are pirates who have a a very different motivation for doing what they're doing. They're not just adventurers. They're not just uh, out for the gold and, you know, questing for the love of questing or whatever it is that, you know, quote unquote, typical movie pirates do. Usual pirate motivation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, there's, uh, there's an element of the survival involved. There's an element of vigilante justice, which is very interesting mm -hmm. um, and complicated. There's an element of fighting against an extremely powerful uh, political force, which is also very, very interesting and not usually part of a, uh, a typical pirate story. But to me, it, it just kind of hit on all cylinders. It was a a Jewish story that, that was interesting and different. It was a pirate story that was interesting and different. How could I not try to figure out what to do with that stuff? Right. And um, there are some real life figures mentioned in that book that you and I both read that I think might be sort of inspirations for the characters in the pirate captain Toledano. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, were you thinking of anyone specifically, any historical figures specifically, or do you just kind of look at the overall story and create this uh, movie based on inspirations from that book? So the Pirate Captain Toledano is fiction. Um, 
it is none of the characters are are based on any real life characters but yes there is some element of inspiration uh in particularly there's a character who according to some was a pirate according to others was a privateer and it's very subtle distinction that doesn't actually mean much when it comes to what they were doing on the high seas and that is samuel palash who was the president of his shul in amsterdam right and also a privateer in the atlantic attacking and harassing spanish ships the thing that really struck me about palash is that when he was out at sea mm -hmm. he had his own cook on the ship so that he could continue keeping kosher these stories are so fascinating. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> that very idea, was it seemed so incongruous and so fascinating. So I, I opened my film with the captain having dinner, and he's having dinner in his cabin, he's having dinner on his own, he's not eating with the crew. The idea that the captain would, would maintain that type of separation. Mm. And, you know, keeping kosher is, is, it's a form of cultural separation, kind of creating right. a, a a, drawing a line in the sand of, of sorts, it was fascinating to me. So I, I, I wanted to anchor the pirate captain in this idea of Samuel Polash, who's the, the from pirate, so to speak. Right. This film, it has such an amazing look to it. Um, it looks like it was entirely shot on like a historically accurate tall ship. How did you do that? Where did you film this? You know, when I came up with the idea, I had no idea how I would actually pull it off. And in fact, I didn't think that I would. I thought, well, okay, I just wrote a nice little short script and this is going to sit on my computer for a decade and, you know, eventually I'll forget about it and move on. But I had to figure it out. I, something about it just nagged at me. And turns out there's an organization called the Ocean Institute about an hour and a half, two hours south of me, uh, south of Los Angeles. And they have two tall ships. These are replica tall ships that they've acquired over the years. And when I called them up and told them about the project, they were willing to negotiate on the, the price. I mean, around here, people film in all sorts of places because we're, we're so close to where big movies get made. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were familiar with productions coming through and they had a, a standard rate and a standard way to do it. But they were willing to work with me and to help us pull this thing off. So we actually shot on two tall ships. Some of the, some of the scenes in the film are shot on one of the ships where they looked better and some are shot on the other ship where those scenes worked better. But yeah, if it wasn't for the Ocean Institute willing to help us out and and really, you know, play ball with us uh, to a great extent, this thing couldn't have happened. The production values are really incredible and add this atmosphere that you're able to achieve in just like this short film that's really remarkable. So I actually wanted to ask about the acting, which was really impressive. I'd love for you to tell us about the casting and filming with these actors. Uh, well, we got lucky. I think the... The cast, you know, when with short films with limited budgets, your your options tend to be a little bit more limited. But especially the the luckiest piece of this is the guy who plays the cat. His name is Stephen de Cordova, and I've worked with him before, uh, actually on on a Mad Men, a Jewish Mad Men parody that I put out a bunch of years back called Mad Mensch. It's on YouTube if you want to find it. It sounds like a must see, by the way. So yeah, as soon as we get, as soon as we finish, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> Oh, it's fun. It's fun. He made the front page of the Wall Street Journal a bunch of years ago, which was really cool. But anyway, I worked with Steven on that and we stayed in touch. And at one point I posted on Facebook that I was playing around with a concept for about Jewish pirates. And he reached out to me. He said, I don't know what you're doing with Jewish pirates, but whatever it is, I'm interested. I want to help out whatever I can, whatever I can do. That's amazing. Yeah. I brought him in to do to do a table read and he did very, very well. I mean, 
I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but he also, he knew, he read the script when I sent him the script to, to prepare. And in the script, there's a scene about a kiddish cup and it's a whole thing. He brought a kiddish cup from home. So I thought, okay, well, this guy's, he wants to be prepared. He wants, he's bringing the prop. That's really good. But turns out the kiddish cup belonged to his grandfather. And what I didn't know is that his mother came to New York from Kingston, Jamaica. His mother's family had been in Jamaica for hundreds of years they were part of the Jamaican Jewish community and, and had come to Jamaica. They had fled the Inquisition, came to the New World. And this Kiddush cup was a piece of authentic Caribbean Judaica from God knows how many years ago. Uh, so it was really like he had reached into the script and pulled out this cup that I had written about. It was kind of magical and really felt like a moment of kismet or fate or you know whatever you want to call it. Um, so It was beshared. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, it's amazing that... Um you found someone who kind of approached you to play. And I, I also, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether his resume includes pirate films, but we did hear that on this whole theme of authenticity, you worked with a professional troupe of pirate actors. Uh, I guess if that's a, if that's, it is, a, it is a genre now. And they yes. had worked on Pirates of the Caribbean and Master and Commander, which I love. How do you go about being typecast as a pirate? And how do you find pirates? Is, it, is there like a Google for Hollywood where you can find, you know, any I played zombies in the following shows sure. or whatever you can just find them well I mean if you if you have a bit more of a budget you can go through central casting and get anybody you want so when it comes to the pirates in, in our film we got really really lucky when I ran the crowdfunding campaign and I, I guess I should back up and say that this film was crowdfunded we ran a crowdfunding campaign raised the money for it <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make it happen so during the crowdfunding pan campaign some of these pirate actors kind of caught wind of the project and you know they kept an eye on it just to kind of see what was going on i was introduced to one of them by a mutual friend in the film industry who said well i know a guy who runs a pirate troupe kind of filed that away in the back of my mind as we got closer to production i realized we need some extras to kind of fill out this scene so i reached out to this guy i figured it's cost effective if we can hire act extras who have their own wardrobe they already have their own pirate costumes, so it kind of saves us some trouble. Reached out to him, hired some of his guys. Now, he got really excited about this project. So when I talked to him, he said, you know, you'll hire the guys that you need to hire, but if you want more, let me know. We've got hundreds of members in our troop, and it's a little last minute, so we might not be able to get all of them, but we could probably get a whole bunch to show up for free. So they're living this. Like, are they, are they doing this every week, and they're doing, like, pirate reenactments or really embraced a pirate lifestyle to the extent that they can in Los Angeles? <laughs> they do pirate festivals, renaissance festivals. They can You can hire them for birthday parties or office parties and uh, things like that. They do maritime education stuff at, at some of the museums up and down the coast. And yeah, they get hired for, for films and television every now and again. You know, it's a, it's a really neat... Uh, well, that's an amazing job. Yeah, it's a really neat thing. And so we got a whole bunch of extras who volunteered to just show up and help us out. And my favorite story from all of that is that I got to set on the day that we were shooting. And we, we shot overnight. So I got there in the late afternoon. And I see these three big muscular guys lugging something really heavy onto one of the tall ships. I knew, you know, we don't have all that much space on the deck. It's actually kind of cramped up there. So I went up to them and said, hey guys, just curious what, what you're bringing onto the ship when really what we want to do is take stuff off the ships. And they said, well, we know these ships, we know these cannons. These cannons are about 75 years too new for the period of your film. So, so we brought our own. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, 
They just have their own cannons. Oh, they have a warehouse full of all amazing. sorts of amazing stuff. We got to borrow, like, the swords, I think, were theirs, or most of them. A bunch of the wardrobe elements were theirs. They just, they said, anything that we have that you could use, let us know, and we'll bring it. And it was uh, part of the authenticity of the film. Part of that texture is yeah. entirely to their credit. Yeah. They saw what we were doing and liked it and decided, you know what, we want to be part of this and not just, not just hired hands. Right. Wow, that really is bringing the authentic flavor to yeah. the movie. So one thing Dan and I are really big on here at the Vibe of the Tribe is giving a platform to non-Ashkenormative stories, as we mentioned before. You know, we're really interested in the non-Ashkenazi, you know, viewpoint on things. Not because there's anything wrong with it, just we want to open it up to a lots of lots of different stories. So something really unique about this film and something I really loved is how you used Ladino melodies in the soundtrack. Ladino for our listeners being the language of the Iberian Jews. And Ladino is such a beautiful language and we hope it experiences a real revival through, you know, traditional uses and entertainment like this. Did you want the viewer to come away from the film intrigued about the language and its history? Yes and no. I mean, it's it's one of those funny things where you make a movie, you want the viewer to come away entertained. And if you can achieve more than that, you know, that's, that's even better. To me, the inclusion of Ladino was part of what felt like an, a necessary part of the process of giving the film the historical texture and the sense of, of gravitas and connection just to a grand history. And, you know, frankly, if, there, if, it, if that does drive curiosity about the language and about the culture and about the history of all of that, then I think, great. I'll take it. But it wasn't a primary, it wasn't a front of the mind focus when I was making the film. The front of the mind focus is always, how do I make sure that this is fun and interesting and entertaining and I don't put the audience to sleep. For me, I thought that the the film was like, it was like an extended teaser. I wanted more. I wanted, I wanted a nine part miniseries when I watched this. And, you know, I'm wondering how can we, collective you, us, everyone who's listening, help to bring to light more of these incredible stories based on history that, you know, in this case, things that people really don't know about. And, you know, when will we finally get this story to be a full-length feature or even better, that miniseries that I was talking about? So the <laughs> the flippant and easy answer is money. <laughs> these things are expensive to produce. And uh, so if anybody out there is interested in supporting this kind of project and pushing this kind of project forward and has the means to do so, get in touch with me because I've got tons of ideas that just need the resources behind them in order to push them forward. But beyond that, the more, I guess, the more measured answer that is probably more applicable to you and most of your listeners is when you find these stories, when you find these films or TV shows or comic books or whatever it is, buy them if you can, watch them, share them, spread them around as much as possible. Because the financial apparatus behind Hollywood responds to the audience. If there's mm -hmm. an audience, if you can demonstrate there are people watching this thing, there are people paying for this thing, there are people sharing this thing, talking about it on social media, that financial apparatus kind of perks its ears, you know, sniffs those projects out and tries to replicate. So as much as possible, if when you find things that, that speak to that idea, that relay those kinds of stories, support them, spread them around as much as you can. And that that really is how how the entertainment industry figures out what what to plow money into next. So along those lines, how can people follow along with you and the film? Oh, well, we've got a pretty active Facebook page, um, facebook.com slash Jewish Pirates. 
<laughs> I think it's kind of amazing <laughs> that we actually got that one. But yeah, you know, it wasn't taken before. Iconic. We've got yes, we've got uh, Twitter. I believe it's at Jewish Pirates. Instagram is at Jewish Pirate Captain. Uh, I use those a little bit less frequently. Facebook tends to be where we get most of the engagement. So we've been focusing our efforts there. And anybody's welcome to contact me through any of those through any of those sites. And uh, the film itself is going to be screening soon in Massachusetts, which is very exciting for me too. Right. That's right. It's going to be uh, showing at the Waltham Film Factory Shorts Fest on December 15th and 16th. And we're actually going to include um, a link in the show notes for this podcast episode for people to get tickets. I'm really excited about this upcoming screening because it's actually our first screening in Massachusetts. And Mazel tov. Thank you. And it's in Waltham, which is where I grew up and where I went to school and where I went to college. So it's it, it's a really warm, fuzzy feeling for me that it, it's going to be screening there. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Arnon, so much for joining us today on Vibe of the Tribe. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. And listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Thanks, everybody.